Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter number 7. 2 Samuel chapter number 7. Uh, How many of you have a nickname someone calls you? Anybody got a couple nicknames? All right. Some of you know April calls me babe. Uh, I cannot tell you what I call her. Uh, But, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my brothers and sister, uh, you know, we were a great loving family. Uh, They called me dirt eater. Um, I did not eat dirt, and I will defend that to the day I die. But I always, I did lick my lips a lot. You know, I always had chapped lips, and so I licked my lips, and I played in the dirt, so, you know, dirt stuck. But they always called me dirt eater because I ate dirt. Uh, But I did not eat dirt, uh, and never did, and they cannot prove that. Uh, But anyway, you know, we all have, you know, nicknames or things that people call us uh, throughout life. The most frequent title that Jesus was called while he was on earth, was son of David. Uh, Matthew calls him son of David ten times in his gospel alone. And there's a reason for that. But really what that, that helps us to know is if we are going to understand Jesus and who he is and what he expects of us, then we really need to understand David. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter number 7, David... Uh, He has established himself as king over Israel. Uh, Saul has died. Uh, Of course, at the beginning of his rule, the kingdom was divided up into two different kingdoms, but he has defeated the enemies inside Israel and outside Israel, and he's ruling over one united Israel, and he's at peace with all other nations. The Philistines are no longer a threat. They're no longer invading him. Uh, So now Israel, for the first time really in its entire history, Israel is at peace, they're at rest, and they're they're prospering incredibly. During this time, Nathan is the prophet of God in Israel. He, He really acts as Israel's pastor, but more specifically, he is David's pastor. Uh, he is the man who has the, the ear of the king and not just using it for his own benefit, but he's telling David what God expects of him, what God wants him to do. And he's really uh, serving as David's pastor. And he's, he's at David's house one day. They're out on the, the back porch of David's palace. I don't know if they're, they're sipping tea or, or playing checkers or whatever they're doing, but they're just they're kind of hanging out. And David looks over to where the the tabernacle is. Now, if you know your Bible, the tabernacle was built by the Israelites after they came out of captivity from Egypt. And it was a a place for God's presence to dwell with Israel. They had the the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat and the presence of God dwelt where once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the, the blood of the Lamb of the sacrifice on the mercy seat of God and he would kind of cover the sins of Israel for another year. And then, of course, they had the holy place where the table of showbread was and the, the lampstand and the golden scepter and all the things, uh, the, the tools used to worship God and only the, the priests were allowed in there. And then, of course, they had the outside of the Holy of Holies and the holy place 
they had the, the, the courtyard, and this is where they performed the sacrifices, where the, the priests did their duties, and they, they you know, kind of lived their life there. But it was, it was never a permanent structure. It was never meant to be a permanent structure. It was meant to be mobile, uh, because Israel, for the first 40 years, wandered around the desert. Then after they went into the promised land, they still had to travel through the promised land to conquer the enemies, to get their, the right place. And so now, they're at peace. David is in the capital, Jerusalem, and the, the tabernacle is there. But it's still not a permanent place for God's presence to dwell. And so David looks at this. And of course, now, the tabernacle is, is several hundred years old. It's been taken thousands of miles set up and, and put down again and you know re re-erected and torn it down and moved and erected and torn down and moved and so it's it's showing some wear and tear. It's not as glorious as it used to be. It's not as magnificent as it used to be. And so David he looks at kind of this faded, kind of worn down, kind of you know showing some age on it, house of God and then he looks at his house, and he's living in a palace, and it makes him feel bad. So let's start reading in verse number 1. And it came to pass, chapter 7, and it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and, that the, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. See, David is bothered by the fact that he's living in this luxurious house. Now, in this time, cedar was one of the most expensive materials you could use to build a house. Most houses weren't built out of cedar. They were built out of sod or kind of mud brick. And so to have a cedar house was a, a luxury. It was a sign of your wealth and your prosperity. Kind of still today, you know, cedar wood is very expensive, and you know, people have cedar closets because it makes it smell good. You know, cedar's rot resistant, it's insect resistant, it repels moths and stuff like that. You know, people build fences out of cedar because it withstands the weather, but it's very expensive. It's more expensive than pressure treated lumber, but it does last longer than most pressure treated lumber. And so even in this time, a cedar house was a, a sign of wealth and prosperity. And so David looks at his house, he's like, I've got this magnificent palace that, that has been given to me. And God lives in a tent. And it's, it's a faded tent. It's not as glorious as it used to be. Yeah, it's still got gold stuff there, and it's still, but you know, the, the fabric's kind of faded. Maybe there's some rips and tears. And he, he looks at that and says, this isn't right. I'm just a king. But he's God. God deserves a better place than what he's living in. Uh, look at verse number 3. <clears throat> and Nathan said unto the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. So David, Nathan basically tells David, Well, David, if you feel that way, do something about it. Make it right. If you're upset that, that the tabernacle is not as good as it used to be, then have it rebuilt, have it refurbished. Have it restored to its former glory or build God a bigger place. Whatever you want to do, David, you go ahead and do what God has laid on your heart. So that night, God comes to Nathan in a dream. And He tells Nathan 
some news that really puts a damper on what David wants to do. Look at verse number 4. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. And all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel spake I a word uh, with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, and following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all mine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are, on the, that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. As, as, and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee and how. So God goes to Nathan and says, I want you to tell David this. I haven't had a house since I created the world. Ever since I spoke everything into existence, I've, I've dwelt on the earth in this tent. Sometimes I've come in a burning bush, sometimes I've come in the form of a man, sometimes I've wrestled, you know, but I've never had a, a, a permanent place to live in, and I don't need one. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for people to see how wonderful I am and, and to marvel at how magnificent my house is. You, I've never had a house and I don't need a house. And he goes, besides, it's not your responsibility to take care of me. I can take care of myself. I can provide for myself. It is my responsibility to take care of you, David. See, at its core, Christianity isn't about giving to God. It's not about doing things for God. It's about what God has done for you. We don't work to bless God. God blesses us. So this passage, it raises three questions we need to answer this morning. Here's the first question. Number one, what exactly did God promise David in this dream? God promised David that God would build David a house. God says, David, you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. Now, when David uses the word that he wants to build a house for God, he uses the, the Hebrew word that talks about a physical structure. He wanted to build a literal, physical building for God to dwell in. But God, when He tells David, I'm going to build you a house, He uses a different word. He doesn't mean, David, I'm going to build you a nice, a nice, you know, four-bedroom, three-bath, ranch-style house with a pool in the back and a nice wraparound deck and, and all that stuff. Or, you know, I'm going to build you a, you know, a huge mansion. What, when they, God uses the phrase house, He's not talking about a physical building. He's talking about a kingdom. 
a dynasty. He says, David, I'm going to establish your name, your kingdom on the earth for all of eternity, and I'm going to do it through one of your children. Look at verse number 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy, out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, which one of David's sons is God talking about here? Well, like, like all Old Testament prophecies, there is a kind of a double fulfillment to this prophecy. There's a short-term fulfillment, then there's a long-term fulfillment. Now, the, the first fulfillment comes through Solomon. Solomon would end up being the second greatest king in all of Israel. David brought peace and prosperity to Israel. Solomon took it to an entirely different level. He raised more money and had more wealth in Israel than at any other time before or since. He did great things for Israel. He, he established them as an economic and a military power. He built the temple of God that David had wanted to build, this magnificent structure that just dwarfed anything that man had ever seen. And he would build the house for God's presence to dwell in. Under Solomon, Israel would thrive like never before. But Solomon turned out to be a huge disappointment. Of course, Solomon married. The Bible tells us he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, most of those wives were political uh, marriages. He, he married them for you know, peace or to make a trade deal. He, he would marry uh, not just Israelites, but he married Gentile women, uh, different women from different clans and different nations. And most of it was just, just political purposes. I'm just going to marry them so I can have this, this peace treaty. I'm going to marry them to kind of strengthen this trade uh, agreement we have with this nation. And it's really not much to it. But Solomon, towards the end of his life, started worshiping the false gods that his wives worshipped as well. He stopped worshiping God and started worshiping these false idols. You know, that's why the prophecy not only points to one of David's sons that David would know, Solomon, but it points to another son of David, a son that would come 930 years after Solomon. A son that would be born in David's hometown of Bethlehem. And that son would be the embodiment of the house of God that David wanted to build for God. See, Jesus was more than just a good teacher. He was more than just an example for us to live by. Jesus was the ultimate temple of God. And He is the eternal King that God had promised to Israel since He made that covenant with Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate temple. And we can say that because Jesus, He, he housed the presence of God in Himself. John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt in the Greek there literally can be translated to tabernacled. Jesus was God's tabernacle walking and worshiping and fellowshipping with man. He was a walking, talking tabernacle, which is why throughout his ministry he made some, some pretty strange comments. Like he, he told the Pharisees, you can tear down this temple 
and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, everyone was confused by that. They're like, it took us 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to come in and tear it down and build it up again in three days? That's just, that's not possible. How could he rebuild something that took so long to build in the first place? They thought that Jesus was talking about the physical temple, but he was talking about himself. John 2 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was the temple being building, and what thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Jesus was the real temple on earth. He housed the presence of God in Himself. And when they tore down that temple through the crucifixion on the cross, through His his torture and His scourging and His hanging on the cross and His death, they tore it down. But three days later, He rose it. He brought it back when He rose from the grave. But the most amazing part is that when He ascended to God the Father, 40 days after His resurrection, He didn't take the temple with Him. He left the temple with us. He gave us the presence of God to dwell inside of us. He told us, I'm going to leave, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to put the Spirit of God in you. So that the temple that dwelt with man while Jesus walked the earth now dwells in us through the Holy Spirit and dwelling of God's children. The same Spirit that hovered over the ark, the same Spirit that was in Jesus is now inside of me as His child. When the Spirit appeared before uh, on the people at Pentecost, the Bible says that it appeared as flames of fire over their heads. That was kind of to show what, what, the, what was happening, the Spirit of God was willing. Because remember during the time that Israel wandered through the desert with the ark, the Spirit of God was evident to the children of Israel through a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. And that represented God's presence. See, God's desire has always been to be united with His people. To walk with us. To be close to us. In the garden, God would come down in the cool of the day. And He would walk with Adam and Eve. He would talk with Adam and Eve. He would fellowship with Adam and Eve. And when He did that, they said, God walks with us. But then they sinned, and they lost the gift of the presence of God. And then God had Israel wandering through the wilderness with the tabernacle, and they, they, they would have Him with Him, and He was a cloud of smoke by day or a cloud of fire by night. And when the people saw the cloud, when they saw the fire, they were able to look at that and say, God is with us. God's presence is. Is with us. The people, when the temple was built, when the tabernacle was finished, and the temple was finished, the glory of God came to rest upon it. And when they felt God's presence, they saw God's glory and God's presence rest with them. They rejoiced and said, God is with us. God is in the midst of us. Then Jesus was born. And they said, He shall be called Emmanuel. Which interpreted means, God with us. Then Jesus lived His perfect life. He died on the cross and out for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God, was buried, rose three days later, and then ascended to God the Father. And when He ascended to God the Father, He gave us the Spirit. So now we can say, God is in us. God is with us. 
the point of Christianity isn't believing the right things. It's not behaving in the right ways. The point of Christianity, the point of salvation is that we can be united with God. We can commune with God. We can walk with God. We can know Him and trust Him and abide in Him as He abides in us. Jesus is God's ultimate temple. But He's also the eternal King. You know, every Old Testament prophecy in Scripture points to an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that God says, once my kingdom is established, it will last forever and it will bless all nations. And that is, and Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He didn't come just as our Savior. He came as our King. We don't, we don't give enough weight to that truth. You know, we, we talk about Jesus pretty much exclusively as being our Savior. You know, someone we invite into our hearts to to save us from our sins and to remove the penalty and the power of sin and to to take us away from hell and give us eternity with Him in heaven. And look, don't discount that. He did do that. He came to die for your sins, to absorb the wrath of God for your sins, so that you could be forgiven of your sins and live with God for eternity. But He is also our King. And that has some weight to it. That means something. That we have to understand. As our king, number one, as our king, he is our authority. You cannot accept Jesus as your savior and not submit to him as your king. You can't separate those two. You can't say, I'm going to accept your gift of salvation, but I'm going to live my life my way. I'm going to accept your gift of salvation, but I'm going to ignore your rules. I'll, I'll take what you have for me, but I'm going, to do, I'm going to live my life however I want to live. You may say it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, God, I don't care. Yeah, thank you for salvation. I'm living my life my way. You cannot separate His salvation from His kingship over your life. If you do not fully submit to His authority over your life, you have not truly accepted Him as your Savior. He came as our King, and to follow Him is to join His kingdom and to submit to His authority. Christianity is submitting to Jesus as King, letting Him set your goal, letting Him set the rules that we live by, so that we accept Him as our Savior, and then we see something in Scripture, or we hear something in a message, or we learn something through our prayer life that God says, I don't want you doing that anymore. We say, "You're you're in charge. I'll give up whatever you want me to give up. Well, you know, it may be something you, I really like. You know, I know God wants me to, to give up pornography, but does it really hurt anybody? Is it really that bad? Yeah, it is. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter if, and look, we, I can get into and I can spend a couple hours telling you how horrible and destructive and manipulative the, the pornographic industry is, how it destroys people's lives, how it's horrible, and just the, the human trafficking and the slavery that goes into it that we don't even think about. I can spend all day telling you about all that. Doesn't matter if it doesn't hurt a soul. God said it's wrong. What about gossip? And look, y'all can say, well, yeah, what about gossip? What about envy? What about all these things that we, we wish that we're doing but God says we are not to do? If God says it's sin, it's sin. Doesn't matter if you believe it is or not. Well, I'm not gossiping. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to spread information. You're not a newscaster. You're not, you're not Sam Donaldson. Is he still alive? 
I don't know. But anyway, you're not Barbara Walters. Is she dead? She's dead too? Lord, I haven't watched news in 20 years. Who's a news guy? Anderson Cooper. Is he still a thing? I don't know. You're not any of these people. Uh, you're not a new... Melissa Gayona. She works at WLSLS. I know her personally. You ain't her. You know, she can report the news. You're just spreading gossip. Well, people need... No, they don't. You know, if it's not true, not helpful, not benefit, God says don't, don't talk about it. But, but you don't... doesn't matter. Whatever sin you, can, you think that you, is okay... And look, I can name some good, some bad ones. Some, and I don't, want, I don't want to go to the whole list of every sin that we can ever commit because most of them are mine. But whatever it is that you think, well, I know, I know it's wrong, but I still want to do it. You've not fully submitted to God as your king. He sets the rules. He sets the guidelines. We just obey. And look, sometimes we treat God's guidelines like we treat speed limits. When you get past Troutville, what's the speed limit? 70 miles an hour. Not 75. Because they have, a, they have to put a sign up there that says, if you're going over 80, it's reckless driving. So when they give you 10 miles, they can pull you over for 71. But we treat it like a speed limit. Well, I know it's 70, but if I go 78, I can get away with it. You know how I know that? Because that's what I do. I set my cruise control 78. I'm not going over 80, but I'm breaking the law. That's how we treat God's laws. Well, I know he says don't lie, but it's a little white lie. It's okay. No, it's not. He's king or he's not king. He sets the rules or he doesn't. We obey him or we don't. You can't have him as savior and not have him as the king of your life. Christianity is submitting to him as king. So as king, he's authority. Number two, as king, he gives us a mission. As king... He gives us a mission. This new kingdom that we are a part of has its own agenda and has its own priorities. When you became a Christian, you became an agent of His kingdom and His mission became your mission. Just as you can't be a Christian and be not submitted to Jesus as King, you can't be a Christian and not live on mission for God. Jesus said when we pray, He says to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That means in every dimension of my life, in my job, in my relationships, in how I spend my money, I have to ask an important question. What is the kingdom's purpose in this? How am I to use this to build His kingdom? To spread the gospel to a lost and dying world. To show the lost world that we have a better King, a better Savior than anything the world has to offer. I can't have Jesus as my Savior if I'm not living on mission for Him. As King, He's our authority. As King, He gives us a mission. And thirdly, as King, He reigns in our life. This passage tells us that the King will appoint His people a place to dwell. He says they're going to dwell in safety, and they're never going to be disturbed or afflicted by violent men. Now here's the thing. Look at the world around you. Does it look like Israel's living in peace and not being afflicted by violent men? Alright. Most of you here are professing believers. You're Christians. Does it look like your life is a life of ease and not being afflicted by angry men? No! It is a mess. 
So you look at the world, you're like, well, this promise isn't fulfilled. Because we're surrounded by oppression and, and sickness and danger is everywhere. But here's the thing. Our king defeated death itself. See, yeah, we, we, we got danger, but death ain't one of them. Death for the believer is not a, a loss. It's a victory. It means we just get to go to heaven and wait on Jesus to set up His kingdom where we can come back and rule and reign with Him. And we have no more pain, no more heartache, no more suffering, no more nothing. We get our glorified bodies where we don't got to worry about you know floating down a river and breaking every bone in your foot because your wife's crazy and thinks, it'll be fun to float down the river. No, it won't. Y'all should see my legs. They are bruised beyond all recognition. Looks like she beat me. And uh, you know she made it out unscathed, so maybe she does beat me. I'm just saying. It's a possibility. Men can be suffering domestic abuse too. But anyway, you're not going to worry about all that. One day he's going he's to set up his kingdom. He's going to allow me to rule and reign with him. And so, yeah, our king defeated death of itself, and that shows us that he has power over everything. So that means that when he tells me that everything I go through, the good, the hurtful, the painful, the difficult, the embarrassing, whatever it is I'm going through, when he says it is all going to work together for good, I may not see it, but I believe him. Jesus is not just our personal Savior that forgives our sins. He is a reigning king who has promised to come back soon and wipe away every tear. And while I wait, He promises to use my pain for good and for His glory. That means over cancer, Jesus reigns. Over the nations, Jesus reigns. Over the difficult times you are facing in your life, Jesus reigns. So what exactly is God promising David? He promises him a permanent place for God on earth and a place in God's eternal kingdom. And both are fulfilled through Solomon, but ultimately through Jesus. Which brings us to the second question. What was the basis of this promise? What is... God basing this promise to David and to us off of one word, grace. See, the kingdom, it wasn't something that David was going to do for God. It was something God was going to do for David. You know, we've seen already, David is a, a flawed king. Right now, he's at the top of his game, but he's still made some mistakes. He still has some things he's, he's not dealt with, and it gets worse from this point in a few chapters. We're going to have the Bathsheba incident, where David takes another man's wife, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and tries to bring that guy back to try to cover up his sin, and when that doesn't work, he has him killed to try to cover his sin. That, you know, that doesn't work, and so you know everything goes wrong. And here's the thing. God knew this was going to happen. God didn't wake up one morning and Gabriel come to him and say, God, 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 did you see what David did? And now God's reading the New York Times or whatever. says, I can't believe David did it. God knew David was going to blow it incredibly. Now look, all of us have made mistakes. All of us have sinned, have messed up one way or the other. I don't know personally, but I'm hoping none of you have slept with another man's wife and then killed him to get away with it. I don't know for sure. Don't tell me if you have. 
But we look at David's and we're like, that's a big sin. God knew David was going to do that. And he still gave him this promise. See, God was saying, David, it's not a, it isn't about you and your goodness building something for me. You could never earn what you have, even if you tried. David, it's about me and my goodness giving something to you. And that might be the hardest lesson to learn as a Christian. Here's the thing. We come to God with nothing. You have nothing to offer God. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how educated you are. I don't care how connected you are. I don't care how wealthy you are. You bring nothing to God. At all. He doesn't save you because you deserve it. He doesn't save you because you earn it. He doesn't save you because He thinks you can do great work for Him. He saves you because He loves you. Because of who He is, not because of who you are. See, we only receive Him. That goes against every ounce of pride in us. And we all have a lot of pride. I come to God as a beggar. I am poor. I am wretched. I am naked. And I am blind. Everything I have to offer God is just filthy rags. And realizing that doesn't come naturally or easily. Billy Graham used to say that it's not, it's not usually people's sins that keep them out of heaven. It's usually their good works. God has abundant mercy for the biggest sinner. It's our pride and our good works that keep us from it. See, it isn't your weakness that keeps you from being used by God. It's your strengths. You know, your strengths keep us from allowing God to do what He wants to do in and through us. You know, church historians, they have characterized, uh, they, they kind of given a, a characterization and an overview of the, the Great Awakening in America. And they, they say the, the preaching that characterized the, the power and the effectiveness of the Great Awakening wasn't the preaching about repentance. They say preaching of the Great Awakening can be summarized in two points. The first point was repent of your sins. That's the obvious one. But then the second point was repent of your strengths. Your strengths fill you with pride. Your strength keeps you from throwing yourself fully on God's mercy. Nathan Cole was a farmer during the Great Awakening, and he, he wrote about his experience during the preaching of the Great Awakening in his journal. And he said, Hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw my righteousness wouldn't save me, and I turned to God for mercy. For God to build you a house, you have to break up your old foundation. So if I asked you, you know, why should God let you into heaven? And you say anything about you, you're wrong. But I know most of you, I know all of you, you're not going to say that. If I asked you, why, is God, why should God let you in heaven? None of you are going to say, well, because I go to church every Sunday and, and I give a lot to the church and I do this. 
None of us are going to, we're all going to say because I accepted him as my Savior. He, he died for my sins. He was buried and rose three days later to pay for my sins and he absorbed God. And I've accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for my sin. And that's great. That's what you should say. You know, all of us would say, you know, we only, tr- you know, all our hope and peace is in nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But what if I asked you, why do you think you'll be a successful parent? Why do you think you're going to be a good wife? Why do you think you're going to be a good husband? Why do you think you're going to be a good employee? And you say anything about yourself? You haven't broken up your old foundation. You haven't said, it's nothing in me, but it's God in me. Why do I think I'll be a successful parent in my own strength? I won't be. You can ask my kids. They'll tell you. I'm not a good parent. I mess up all the time. I make mistakes all the time. So what's going to make me a successful parent? Christ in me. Because I've got to get rid of my pride. And look, I'm very good. You can also ask them this about getting rid of my pride. I have no problem telling my kids I messed up. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done whatever. I, I apologize to them all the time. You know, my, parent, my, my, my parents never did that. They were never wrong. Even though they were wrong, they were never wrong. But I have to swallow my pride and say, God, I messed up again. I tried to parent in my own strength and whew, I blew it. You know what makes me a good husband? I'm so handsome. I'm so awesome. And that's it. No, it's nothing in me. Because again, you can ask her. Sometimes I have a great husband. Sometimes I'm a lousy husband. But I have no problem saying, honey, I'm, I messed up. I'm sorry. She has a, she's never said she's sorry to me. Never one time has she said, honey, I messed up. Or honey, I was wrong. Uh, so she's got a lot of pride. Now, she has said that. But what's going to make me a good husband? Submitting to Christ and saying, God, you've got to work through me. It's nothing, nothing I bring... For salvation, nothing I bring for a life lived for God. It's all Christ in me. You know, if we're pointing anything to ourselves, we're still trying to build a house for God. We haven't learned the truth of John 15. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, he are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He didn't say without me, you can't do good things. Without me, you can't do amazing. He goes, without me, you can do nothing. I can't parent without Him. I can't pastor without Him. I can't do anything without Him. If I want to be used by God, I have to give up any idea that I can do something great for Him. Greatness is not in me. It is God in me. My righteousness my strength, my hope is only in Him. Bring us to the third question. Number three, how did David respond? How David responded to God's promise shows us how we should respond as well. So look at verse number 18 of chapter number 7. <clears throat> then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord? Then what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And 
What can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, uh, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all we have heard with our ears. And what one nation and in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, before thy people which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. Now, there's a lot. Here's the gist of it. The chapter started with David wanting to do something great for God. It ends with David sitting in wonder at all God has done for him and what God will do in the future. See, God gives us grace and we give Him glory. There are two truths I want you to understand that from this story that if you understand them and you live them and you, you recognize them, they'll change your life. Here's the first one. God only offers grace, not rewards. God didn't choose David and David's line to bring forth the Messiah because of how great David's family was. David's righteousness had nothing to do with it. If, it. if God was basing the lineage of Christ on the goodness of a family, Jesus would have never come. Because no one can live righteous enough to, to have that. If, if God would have relied on David's righteousness, David never would have made it. God gave David a one-sided promise. That's great news for us. Because again, in a few chapters, David's going to steal his wife's friend and have that man killed. And when he does that, the promise still stands. God doesn't come to him and say, well, David, you messed up. I was going to do this, but you blew it. You sinned. I'm taking it away from you. David sins incredibly. And the promise still stands. When Solomon, David's son, who built the temple who brought Israel to its greatest point of prosperity. When he takes 700 wives and he allows those wives to steal his heart from God and he starts worshiping false idols, the promise still stands. When Israel wanders from God again and again and again and again and they're taken into captivity and they're pushed out into exile and they're punished by God again and again only to come back to Him and turn on Him again, the promise still stands. God gave David a promise based on grace. Not based on how well David performed for him. God doesn't choose us because of our righteousness, because we have nothing to offer Him. He doesn't choose us because of our potential 
righteousness. Which also means He won't reject us because of our failures. Charles Spurgeon says, I have no questions that God chose me because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen Him. And I am sure He chose me before I was born, or else He never would have chosen me afterwards. And He must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why I should have looked up, why He should have looked upon me with special love. See, if, if God didn't choose you because of your righteousness, then He's not going to reject you because you don't have any. The basis of His relationship with you from start to finish is grace. God is building you a house and He's made a one-sided promise to finish it. Now, there is a catch. To partake of this promise, we have to repent of our sins and receive grace. Repentance means acknowledging that your sin is sin. Even if you don't think so, even if the society doesn't think so, even if culture doesn't think so, your sin is sin because God says so. God decides what is right and is wrong. You submit to Him. You ask for His help in overcoming your sin. Now, a lot of us, we've repented. We've accepted Christ as our Savior. We've turned from our sin and turned to Him and accepted His death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins. But we still struggle with sin on a daily basis. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand who struggles with sin every day because someone's not going to raise your hand and then you're sinning by lying. So I don't want to call you out as a blatant liar right here. But look, every one of us, every day, struggle with some sin. Some of you have this, you're struggling with the same sin over and over and over and over again. Will God ever give up on you? Proverbs 24.16 says, For a just man falleth seven times, but riseth up again. If you're walking behind somebody in Walmart, and they fall once, you know, you're like, oh man, poor guy. He gets up and falls a second time. Think, Maybe I should start recording this dude. He falls seven times. You're going to think, this guy, something's wrong with him. He's sick, he's drunk, there's something wrong with this guy. Seven times in the Bible, if you've been coming to our Sunday nights, you know the word seven in the Bible, the number seven, means completion. Means 100%. See, God says the righteous man isn't someone who doesn't fall at all. The righteous man is someone who falls a lot. But he gets up every single time. He falls, he confesses, he forsakes it, he gets up and walks again, falls again, falls again. Falls again. But every time he falls, he gets up and walks with God. Because God didn't choose you when you were strong, God's not going to give up on you when you're weak. See, we don't perform and God rewards us. God gives us grace and we receive it. God only offers grace, never reward. Second truth we want to know, number two, God is building you a house. God did not need David to build him a house. David wasn't capable anyway. God created everything, so what possibly, 
could David offer him? Psalms chapter 50 is a psalm of David. Verse number 12 says, If I were hungry, this is God talking, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, drink the blood of goats, offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Here's what David's saying here, here. If God has a need, He's not coming to us. We have nothing we can give Him anyway. If God's hungry, He'll make Himself a sandwich. And He doesn't got to go to the fridge and get the mayonnaise and the tomato, and if you use Miracle Whip, that's a sin against God Almighty. That's in the Bible somewhere. He doesn't got to go. He just says, I need, God doesn't need anything. And even if He did have a need, what could we give Him? He, he made us. He created everything. So what could we possibly give to Him? We have nothing to offer Him. He doesn't need our money. He owns it all. He doesn't need our talents. He's the one that gave them to us. He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. We just offer Him thanksgiving and obedience. Give God glory for what He's done and what He's going to do through you and just ask Him, God, what do you want to use me for? See, we glorify God by calling on Him in the day of trouble and trusting Him to take care of us. God is building you a house by how He's building His kingdom on earth through you. Exodus 14 says, The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. See, being a Christian doesn't mean just sitting around doing nothing. Psalms 50 tells us that we offer ourselves to God, and we ask Him, God, how do you want to use me? We don't come to God and say, God, i got this great talent. You should use me that way. God, i got a bunch of money. You should use me that way. God, I'm real good at it. We come to God and say, God, I've got nothing to offer you. How do you want to use me? How do you want to use me to be a blessing to others? See, the story started with David wanting to go and do, and it ends with him wanting to sit and know God. Christianity isn't going to do great things for God. It's sitting in wonder of all the things He's done for you and waiting for Him to show you what He would have you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.